Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 238, for March 4th, 2010. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 87. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssistExpress, the easy way to provide instant tech support to your customers remotely. Support smarter with GoToAssistExpress. For a free 30-day trial, go to gotoassist.com slash security. And by audible.com. To download a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. And by the new Carbonite Pro. It's simple, secure, and affordable online backup for your small business. For a free trial and to learn more, visit CarbonitePro.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers everything you'd ever want to know about being safe online, about protecting your privacy, and more with us. As always, our expert, our guru of security, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com. He's the guy who... Uh, Wrote, wrote the first anti-spyware program, discovered the first spyware, and coined the term spyware, and he's ever since been helping us uh, keep safe online. Good morning, Steve. Ever since. Ever since. How long was that? How long ago was that? Uh, uh, maybe eight years ago. Wow. I think so. Um, Shields, well, I don't know. I had to look back. Um, yeah, um, in, in the... Early 2000s, I think, because Shields Up is probably about 2001, I think, and here we are in 10. So, you know, it was after I got that all up and running, and and I think it was like right around that same time. So, yeah, it's been many years. Just amazing. And the problems have not gone away. (laughs) Yeah, and the gags and laughs still keep on Uh, coming. Boy. Yeah, they got worse. In fact, this... Steve decided I'm going to let the I'm gonna let somebody who has more time <laughs> pursue this. And you handed it off. I think was it to uh, Adaware or Spybot? The, yeah, it yeah. was the Adaware guys. Adaware, yeah. uh, yep, because they they said, "Hey, we want to do this," and it's, and I was like, "Okay, please, please. please. this is I mean, this you're going to be chasing your tails around forever." On you this got one, much right? more interesting fish to fry these days. Yeah, I, and I'm I'm much more interested in sort of fundamental technology things rather than playing a cat and mouse game with the bad guys it's like oh i mean because there's just too many mice yeah well it's repetitive yeah yeah and i yeah. you know i mean you, you like to do new things all the time exactly I, I admire that about you actually well we've got uh, questions from our audience as usual we've got 10 questions good and true from all of you we've also got a bunch of security news i see and Lots to talk about, as always, updates and so forth. But we're going to get to those in just a second. Before, If you don't mind, I'd like to start uh, by mentioning a sponsor because we have uh, three commercials. We try to keep, just so folks don't get too worried, we try to keep the commercials down to one per half hour on all of our shows. You know, commercial radio does 19 minutes of commercials an hour. One third of the (sighs) broadcast day is devoted to commercials, and we'll never get to that point. But we do like to handpick a few. We've got about six regular sponsors that we just think the world of and we like to share their products with you and one of them of course is citrix we've been very happy uh, happily associated with citrix for so long now 
going back for me to uh, the early days of Comdex when Ed Iacobucci and I used to hang out with Gina Smith. <laughs> and he was the guy who started Citrix, wrote the uh, first remote desktop code. Of course, Microsoft eventually licensed their Citrix Enterprise, and they also have created consumer versions of their products, and one that is so useful if you're in the IT business. That's why they advertise on this show, because they know a lot of smart IT folks listen. It's called GoToAssist. Now, we used GoToAssist uh, many moons ago on the screensavers to help people. It's really a cool program. I've been using it ever since. And I use GoToAssist Express now to help family and friends. If you're in the business, though, you're going to be especially interested in GoToAssist. You can go to GoToAssist.com slash security right now and install it for free and, and take a look at it. So here's how it works. I, you know, my mom, for instance, uh, needed some help. And I said, well, mom, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I was in chat with her. I'm going to send you a chat. I actually was in Skype. I said, I'm going to send you a link via Skype. Click this link. It's okay. It's me. Normally I say, to mom, don't you click those links, but it's me. I'm sending you a safe link. And it takes her to the GoToAssist website. And literally about 30 seconds later, she's got the software she needs. She'd never had software on before to do this. It's just this little Java stub. And all of a sudden I can, I can fix her computer. She just loves it. She says, oh, I like to watch your mousing around. It's fast. It's easy. But here's the best part. You can start up to eight sessions. So if you're fixing one computer, you can move to the next, the next, the next. It tells you what operating system's running, what software's running in the background, what security software's on there. By the way, Mac or PC. So I was on a Mac working on mom's Mac, but I could have been working on a PC. I could have done PC to PC. I could have done Mac to PC. It's, it's completely flexible that way. It also uh, lets you do unintended support. So once I got mom's permission... Anytime her computer's on, I can go in there and fix stuff. That's just awesome. I want you to try it free. This is just, it's, it's remote access for the IT pro or the software support person who really needs this instead of that, those long, horrible phone calls. Go to gotoassist.com slash security. Give it a try. We thank them very much for supporting security now. And, and uh, try it. I, I know you'll like it. All right. I guess we should get the uh, security news going here steve as always we have some oh, yeah. it's uh mozilla and firefox's turn for updating this week um a bunch of stuff has come to light that they dealt with in a series of updates since we last spoke um there was i thought it was interesting to sort of give people a sense for just how convoluted some of these problems are there's a, a cross-site scripting hazard, which we've done a whole podcast on in the past, um, that was discovered, which uses SVG documents, which are uh, SVG is scalable vector graphics, which is um, a, um, a line drawing oriented means for showing sort of resizable, that is to say scalable graphics on a web page as opposed to, for example, GIF and JPEG. Or and Flash. I mean, it's used often in, in, instead of Flash as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so you, using an SVG document with a content type, we've talked about that too. A co content type is the, is the header which is sent along with the return of this asset, whatever it is, the you know, an image or a web page or a flash object or, or animation or whatever, where the server is declaring to the browser, this is the type of content of this thing. So if um, it uses a content type, um, uh, which is wrong, um, a, a security researcher reported that when this SVG document is served with a content type of 
application slash octet stream and embedded into another document using the HTML embed tag with a type of image slash SVG plus XML, the content type provided by the server is ignored by Firefox and the SVG document is processed normally. Hmm. Um, So a website which allows arbitrary binary data to be uploaded to it, but which relies on the content type application octet stream to prevent script execution would have such protection bypassed because of this, I mean, a tiny little flaw in one little corner of Firefox. And so that means that an attacker could upload an SVG document containing JavaScript, that is to say not SVG, but like JavaScript instead, as a binary file to such a website, which would use the embed tag to present it to other users, as as many Web 2.0 sites do. Um, And that would, um, so that document would end up being able to run its JavaScript, which was by by design prevented by the website, but this little mistake would allow it to get rendered as JavaScript rather than an SVG, even though that's what it's supposed to be. So, I mean, that that's an example of just how obscure so many of these problems are. But what we see is that were this not fixed and it became known, there's like zero chance that it would not be exploited. I mean, a, a you might argue that a Firefox problem is less common um, uh, to see an exploit in the in in you know out in the public than, for example, an, an IE problem just due to the relative size of the install base. Uh, Firefox has about a quarter of the browser market right now, browser share, um, as opposed to IE that you know has pretty much most of the rest of it, but still. We know that the, the, these kinds of things, even as, as obscure as they are, um, do end up getting picked up by the bad guys and, and used as a way in, especially in the kind of attacks that we've talked about recently that we're seeing more of where they're not just scattershot attacks anymore. You know, a, a company is targeted to be, to be exploited, to be a victim, and research is done like – is it, you know, are the employees in that company using Firefox? And if so, then it's not a matter of just spraying this on the Internet. It's like, oh, you know, what do we have in our Firefox bag of tricks that we can use to as a way in to this company's network? And, you know, this is the kind of the, the kind of approach being taken. So Firefox 3.6 has been available for a couple months um, that's been fixed. And then the, the 3.5 lineage needs to be updated to 3.5.8. And even though Firefox did, did say that they were discontinuing support for 3.0, and I had by that time abandoned it all. You know, I'm a slow adopter of these things. I'm not moving to 3.6 yet. Let it, <laughs> Where are you now? 3.5? I'm, I'm on 3.5.8. Okay. So let, that's good. That's all right. <laughs> I'm going to let that settle down a while. Yes. But but uh, if you're still using 3.0, it really you ought to. It's it's time to move over. Um, when I did try to adopt it immediately after release, some of my 
Firefox add-ons complained. And all I had to do was wait a few months. And then when I later tried, everybody was happy. So, um, uh, and then also Thunderbird and SeaMonkey, other, other code from the same code base, the Mozilla folks, also needs to be updated. Th- Thunderbird to 3.0.2 and SeaMonkey to 2.0.3. So I just want to let everyone know it's time to bring that stuff up to speed. And that's one, what I just described in some detail, is one of, of a number of, of fixes. I think there were five or six that um, are cleaned up there. So you definitely want to do that. We talked also in the last couple of weeks, maybe not, if not last week, then the week before, about a problem that had been found in Adobe's download manager, where unfortunately, if you had used download manager to update some Adobe stuff, which of course is, is, is happening with you know, metronomic regularity these days, the, the ActiveX control... Uh, that is the download manager would stay in the browser until it was closed. During that time, it was exploitable to be used by malicious third parties to download anything else that they might want into your computer. The good news is that's been fixed. So you don't have to do anything about it. There's nothing to go and get and download from Adobe's site because as long as you shut down your browser, that will then flush the old buggy version of Download Manager away. And when you next are downloading something to update Adobe products, which probably won't be long from now, um, you'll get the new version of Download Manager where they've closed this hole. Right. Um, now, Microsoft, every six months, publishes what they call their intelligence report, which is full of really interesting data, Leo. Um, and I want to give our listeners the link that that I discovered this current edition through, which is a sans.org link, because it is a sponsored link, and I want to give sans credit for bringing it to my attention. Um, so it is, and, and I'd like you to put it in right now and grab this if you would. Oh, it, yeah. redir- it redirects to Microsoft, and I th- when I was looking at this, thinking, what link am I going to provide? Well, a Microsoft link is like one of those nightmares from hell. I mean, you, you, <laughs> I can't even tell you what that is. So it's www.sans.org slash info, I-N-F-O, slash 55704. Of course it is. So you put that into your browser, okay. www.sans.org dot org slash info slash five five seven oh four which will give them credit for for providing this and bounce us over oh, but this to, is a Microsoft page. I got yes it. I got it. bounce us to Microsoft. Now there's there's two versions either PDF or XPS format. I imagine PDF is what we want and two sizes. Grab the smaller one which is the second offered thing, the summary or I think they call it the key findings. That's a 19-page PDF summary of really interesting stuff. Third link, though, it's uh, 1.7 megabytes. Right. And that now the big one, for those who are more interested or want more details, is I think it's like 10-something megs. Yeah, That's 32 like, megs, I think. 
Oh, 32. That's yeah. 232 pages. Oh, yeah. No, it's 10 megs. The XPX PS is uh, 32. Right, 232 right. pages. Wow. So it's a serious report, although it contains the same pretty pictures huh. as the key findings. Well, that's good. And, for example, I mean, this thing is just full of cool stuff, like pictures of the world colored uh, with, with, with synthetic coloring to show instances of botnets and, and infections and so forth. Um, what I thought was really interesting was on page 7. If you scroll down to page 7, there's, I think it's figure 10. There's a, there's a stacked bar chart showing the evolution of, of the types of sites where phishing is used. And starting in May of 2009 um, and through June and July, you, you see this explosion on social networking sites. There were almost nothing in March 09. And now right. it's, you know, by far, it's like it's just 80%. taken over. Yeah. Yeah, it's just taken over. So, I mean, we, we could spend a whole episode just talking about this very cool report. I don't think we need to because, you know, everyone can just grab it and browse through it. It's really nice diagrams, bar charts, uh, percentage charts showing just basically what's going on in security with all kinds of different breakdowns of information. Yeah, this is really neat, yeah. And, and and revealing. I mean, I think that those uh, social network sites are probably mostly Facebook and Twitter, both of which have been prone to phishing, crazy phishing scams. Yeah, even lately. So well, and and they're getting they're probably getting better and tightening up. But anyway, I wanted to turn our our listeners cool. onto this report because it's very neat. Yeah. And Microsoft has confirmed. Speaking of Microsoft, a uh, a new zero day exploit, um, which. Uh, they're not happy about, but they'll certainly get on to fixing. The idea is that VBScript on a web page, which is opened by IE, which of course, you know, IE is the only thing that's, that's going to run VBScript. Everybody else is JavaScript. And, my, you know, VBScript was, of course, Microsoft's attempt to overthrow JavaScript. And, and thank goodness that didn't work very well. Um, but it's still supported. Because, you know, Microsoft will support everything forever, as, um, or at least, you know, decades. So VBScript can be used to open a message box, which, uh, which is invoking Windows help. And it turns out that the help file can contain macros which will execute if you open the help file. So if the system has outgoing access to remote Samba shares, you know, SMB, you know, Windows file and printer sharing, and personal systems generally do, typically corporate firewalls will block outbound Windows file and printer sharing, but most most of our, like, you know, normal home and small office systems will block incoming Windows file and printer sharing, as will even personal firewalls, but they generally allow outgoing um, file sharing. Um, so, so it turns out that a, a malicious site could host a malicious help file and then put VBScript on a page, which if you go there, will pop up a message box. Now, you do have to press F1 you know, the Windows help key in order to sort of complete this process. But there's lots of social engineering mechanisms for, for allowing this to get yes, done. Just press the help key now. 
Yes, and we'll we'll take you further yes. on your journey. Yes. And so what would happen is your system would then reach out to Lord knows where, somewhere, where, um, you know, following the URL and bring in a help file containing Windows help macros, which would then execute at that point on their own. And, of course, you've lost control of your computer. So I did, you know, Microsoft will get this fixed, I'm sure, with whatever patch cycle. But I wanted to alert all of our listeners that if they are browsing around and some dialog box pops up, the, the last thing you want to do is press F1 at that point. You know, you don't want to say, you know, oh, look, you know, read the text and press F1. Just remember this, that this is out there now. Microsoft got caught off guard. They've confirmed it, but it's a, it's a problem um, until they fix it. Yeah. Or Firefox users that, that um, are running a normal Firefox without any kind of an IE plugin capability uh, will not be supporting VBScript. So uh, presumably, I don't remember now in IE if you're able to turn off VBScript support. I know... Oh, I'm sure you must be. I'm, I'm, well, clearly we can turn off JavaScript, but I'm not sure whether... Maybe it's just scripting. I think in, in, the, um, in the configuration boxes that j- in IE, they refer to it as scripting, so you don't have independent control. I was just thinking, you know, nobody needs VBScript. I mean, like, nobody so you could turn that off, and if you could turn that off and leave JavaScript on, then that would be a painless solution for this. But I don't think we have that level of granularity. No. And uh, there's a one interesting new little module has been added to Metasploit. That uh, Metasploit is this framework, which is uh, at best it's quite controversial. I would say it's a it's a, you know a a malware exploitation framework, which is a sort of a test bed and a hosting bed for all the different kinds of things that we talk about here. Generally, by the time our listeners are hearing about it, someone has taken a a vulnerability, which is then understood and written some code. And so what's controversial about it is it would be one thing if the hackers had to implement this stuff themselves. If they did, there'd be much less of it in the world. Unfortunately, um, the Metasploit framework creates a foundation that allows other people to write this once and then for it to be used, you know, almost in a with push-button ease by anyone who wants to. So a new module got added that did something very clever that I hadn't seen before, and I wanted to talk just sort of share it with our listeners. We've talked about how in, for example, an open Wi-Fi scenario, for example, in a a hotspot where you're just able to walk into a cafe and connect to the Internet. We've talked about all the various dangers there. And in the past, the approach that we've taken for getting control of that network um, has generally been playing games with ARP packets, uh, ARP, Address Resolution Protocol, where, where the idea would be that we would, we would pretend to be the gateway and knit ourselves into a conversation with various other laptops that, that, that are accessible thanks to the fact that we're all sharing the same local Ethernet wireless domain um, by like beating out the gateway or playing various timing games. I mean, it, it's, it, it works, but it's, 
you know, it's it's on the fringe. Turns out some clever hackers have come up with a much simpler solution. They exhaust the DHCP server's resources. The DHCP server is what we're all running in our little routers where the computer is configured to obtain IP address automatically. We've talked about this before in the podcast where as the computer wants to get on the network, it sends out a blind broadcast saying, hey, um, I'm just arrived here. Uh, I need network connection specifics. Uh, Is there a DHCP server that can provide that? So in response to that broadcast, the DHCP server, which is running, it's one of the things running in the router, will respond with an IP address, with the IPs of DNS servers that we've talked about also extensively very recently, and what other information, you know, like um, NTP, uh, network time protocol servers, whatever the DHCP server wants to provide, it's able to hand then to the client. Well, we know that our little home routers have a limited number of addresses they can give out. And oftentimes that's something configurable. In in the web um, page interface, it'll say, you know, first um, IP address, last IP address. And the first one might be 192.168.0.2 and the last one 192.168.0.50 or something. No, there's a range. Well, it turns out that when the server has given all of the IPs that it has, it simply no longer responds. It doesn't, there's no like error message or I don't have any more or anything. It just doesn't respond. So it turns out that it's now become substantially easier to be a bad guy on a network where you have a bunch of machines because you can simply have one computer continually broadcast requests for IPs and the DHCP server will dutifully peel them off of its list until it has no more. And at that point, a legitimate machine attempting to join the network will send a broadcast which will go unanswered unless you, unless the malicious computer answers it, which it's as able to do as the access point. Because And now there's no race. There's no competition. There's no, oh, shoot, you know, the other one got me, you know, beat me to it last time. I'll try to try it again. It's... It's completely leisurely. So you simply send out requests for IPs, collect all the IPs available yourself so that nobody else can have any. Then when anyone else attempts to get one, the DHCP server will will not respond. And so you give it your information, you as DNS server, you as gateway, you as anything. And so you have just very casually, leisurely knit yourself into the network in order to then pursue whatever attacks you want to. Very clever. Not good. Very clever. Uh, And I had a very short little note um, to share about Spinrite. A listener, Richard Frisch in Weston, Connecticut, said his subject was Gibson, Laporte, 
and Spinrite, a great combination. <sighs> and he said, Steve and Leo, I've used owned, used slash owned Spinrite for many, many years. I believe I purchased the first version a long time ago and most, if not all, subsequent versions. I own and use the current one. It has fixed hard drives numerous times over the years. I could tell you stories about what it's done for me, my family, and friends, but the simple truth is more compelling. It just works. I'm a fan of you, your work, and Leo's twit.tv network. Thank you for being you. That is really neat. Thank you, Richard. I really appreciate the note. Yeah. We're going to get to our questions. We've got 10 good ones from our fans in just a moment. Before we do, I do want to mention our good friends at Carbonite.com. You know, this is a backup program we've talked about before. Uh, they have a consumer version, but this is the new one. Just came out called Carbonite Pro. See, it turns out Carbonite found out that a lot of you were using the Carbonite consumer version in your business. You know, buying an account for each machine, and they said, "Well, there's got to be a better way to do that. Why don't we create a enterprise edition of Carbonite designed for the small business?" Carbonite is the online surface you put on a computer. It automat Mac or PC. It automatically starts backing it up. Now, Carbonite Pro is Windows only. There will be a Mac version coming down the road. Uh, but it does the same thing. You install it. You go right now to CarbonitePro.com and you can install it for free. You get a free month. Uh, and you'll see it, it immediately starts backing up the unique data on that system. Uh, the, you know, the financial documents, spreadsheets, whatever it is that you have on there that you, you can't afford to lose. It encrypts it using AES 256-bit. It, uh, it uh, also uses SSL, so it's very secure. And then you can get it back anytime, anywhere. There's an iPhone application uh, you can go online and get your files back. And your end users, if you let them, can restore themselves, which is kind of nice. But you get a centralized dashboard that tells you what the rec- you know the recovery status is on all the systems, what's backed up, what's not. Um, you get all sorts of great stuff. And it's very affordable. Prices as low as $10 a month. Uh, as an example, fifty gig, uh, 18 computers, 5 gigs of backup, 50 bucks a month. Uh, 8 computers, 5 gigs of backup, 25 bucks a month. It's less than paying for the... Uh, Carbonite individual account, and it's a lot less expensive than other enterprise solutions. This is brand new. They would love to get your opinion on it. That's why they're giving it to you free for 30 days by going to carbonitepro.com. Carbonitepro.com. Give it a try. Let me know what you think of it. We're, we're starting to use it here in the office. I think it's a, I think it's a really great solution for, uh, for enterprises where you don't maybe have an IT department, or maybe you do, but you just want something simple that just works. Carbonitepro.com. Steve, I have in my hands, they've been sealed on Funk and Wagnall's porch. <laughs> ten questions. Are you ready to answer those ten questions and put yourself in the Security Hall of Fame? Yep, these are good. Uh, nice variety of questions and uh, uh, good feedback from our listeners. Excellent, as always. Let's start with uh, Warwick, Rhode Island, my old stomping grounds. This is uh, Robert Sylvester, who wants really to be sure. He says, Steve, I thank you for looking at Steganus, Steganos uh, lock note. A lot of uh, listeners had asked us to take a look at that. Yep. Um, I wouldn't trust it if you hadn't looked at it. But could you go a step further and post some hash signatures of the download you examined for the TNO knockout? <laughs> yes, I own Spinrite and use it all the time. What is he asking for? What does he want? Well, this really brings up a good question um, or problem. Um, he, he's, he's saying, okay, this is an open source utility um, acknowledging that I... I took advantage of the fact that it was open source in order to examine the source code myself to figure out 
what the design was of the product because Steganos themselves said nothing about it. They, I mean, if they, if frankly, if Steganos had said, here, for anyone who understands crypto, here's exactly what we did and, and how it works. I would have taken their word for it. I would have said, okay, good. I mean, I've, I read through that. I see what they say they're doing. They look like they're a legitimate, real security company. I'm going to, you know, they've shown me they know what they're doing. I, I got the same, I, I got an, an exactly equivalent impression or, or set of information the hard way, which was because this lock note is open source, I was able to read the source and reverse engineer the same information from it, which I then shared with our listeners. Now, that's different. Well, there, there's two problems. Um, I didn't look at it closely enough to to be able to assert that there isn't something else going on. That is, I mean, I looked at the source, but it's 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 difficult for me as a programmer to explain to a non-programmer how, I mean, like next to impossible it would be for me to even looking at the source to know that there there isn't something I missed. I mean, it's just it, that's a, a an effort that that is um, is like orders of magnitude greater than than reading the source to figure out what the programmer apparently intended. So so I couldn't trust something that I didn't myself write from scratch because it there's just there's so much more going on so many ways some little tiny mistake some i mean if there was some deliberate mistake made in the source i wouldn't see it you know a, a one that should be a zero that allocates an extra word which you know can be used as a trap door where if you put ffff in it then you know then the hash always returns this value i mean it, it's so possible to deliberately hide something in plain sight, which is, frankly, one of the reasons I don't do my stuff open source, because it, it's just, it's too possible to hide something. So, so for me, the value of them making it open source was that I was, it, it served as documentation of their intent, but it could never, for me, serve as, as a sort of a freestanding, trustable um, record from, you know, from, from which I would then move forward. I downloaded the executable from their site as the authors, and, and there's necessarily some, some implicit trust in, in their intention to do me no harm. That is, that, that, that the executable does match the source that I saw. It, it certainly looks like it does. It behaves like it does. I have no reason to believe it doesn't. But, but you know, sadly, the, the level of work required to obtain this kind of assurance is, is phenomenally 
stratospheric. And that's one of the problems we have with computers today. I mean, it's, I don't know what the solution is, but I'm not going to hide from the problem just because we don't have a solution. I mean, this is one of the problems is that, is that software, the way we write it today, the way we craft these solutions is so complicated that it is that even having the source, if it was malicious source, it could masquerade as as the greatest thing since sliced bread. And people could stare at it all day long and not see that there was a mistake in it. So, um, so I don't have hash signatures for what I looked at because I just took what I looked at as documentation that they didn't provide on their site of what of the of the technology that this uses which convinces me that you know they went to i mean they went overboard in making this thing secure um i don't doubt that it is but i don't know that it is and i can't know that it is i mean and, and you know this is exactly what we talk about every week when we talk about whoops brilliant people who had lots of experience designed TLS, transport level security, from SSL, and they made a mistake in renegotiation, you know, which is just now in the process of being fixed a decade later. Right. So, I mean, this stuff is, it's a problem that it's so hard, but I, but I think at least appreciating and, and understanding the nature of what we're expecting is important. And, and all I can do is say, I, I liked that they provided the source. Because now I understand how this thing works deeply and could say, and I did, they really did a beautiful job. <laughs> That's great. Was it perfect? I can't say that it was perfect. Well, there's a, you know, a red stapler in our chat room uh, posted a link to the underhanded C contest, uh, which is underhanded.xcott.com. And this is a perfect example. They have assignments. The fifth contest is now open. To write code that is in, on, on the surface, on the face of it, in every respect, completely secure and reliable. And the, and, the, and the contest is, what can you get away with? So this challenge is to write a luggage sorting program. And they give you all the parameters, as if it was a real you know, assignment, a real uh, request for a, um, code. And they, they give you all the details. And then they say, okay, but here's the underhanded part. Your program must inexplicably misroute a piece of luggage if the right kind of free text comment is provided by the check-in clerk. Yep. So it's a, it's just a you know backdoor. Yeah. It's just a, it look, but anybody reviewing the code should be completely satisfied would, 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 would that it's safe. Never see that. Yeah. Yes. I don't know how you do that, but apparently there are ways to do this. <laughs> oh, for, I I know immediately. For example, say that you you would somewhere make a little hash of the comments. Which you said you were using for this purpose, right? But you would be checking the hash against a constant somewhere else, and that would open the trap door and cause a misroute. And and I mean, so you know, it's it's that that's one of the problems. See, for example, I am you know, I, people are going to ask me when I get CryptoLink happening. Hey, you know, we want to see the source. I'm going to say sorry. I will. I'm going to document the protocol. I'm going to document exactly what I intended, but the source is not available because it's not useful to anyone. I mean, it'll be an assembly language, so you could, you know, you could disassemble the code if you wanted to. But I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to be as completely open 
as I can be, but um, I'm not going to have my source taken and mutated and turned into something else. I mean, because I will write it, I mean, every single bite of it, I'll be able to make a representation about, as to the best of my ability and knowledge, this is what I created. And there is, I mean, you know, I'll put my reputation on it that there's, that I've made no mistakes and there's no, certainly no d- deliberate backdoors. But um, uh, beyond that, I mean, there just isn't a way to be absolutely sure. So forget the uh, the, the uh, hash. Steve's promising nothing. <laughs> You're asking too much. Paul Scribbins in Cumbria, UK, wonders how to play with machine code. He says, Steve and Leo have been listeners since episode one. I think the work you do is excellent. Spin right owner as well. My father tried to get me into machine code when I was about 12 years old in 1982 after we purchased our first computer, a ZX81. Remember the Sinclair? They also bought a book, How to Program in Machine Code. It never really took off for me, but through the preceding years, I've always wanted to give it another go. So your episode on the subject really interested me. I do have run requests, though. Would you do a bit on which assembler package or software to use? I'm currently using Windows 7 and plan on buying a MacBook Pro soon as well, but I have no idea what software to download to enable me to play with assembler based on your teachings. Keep up the good work, Scrib. There have been a number of people, um, listeners, who have said, hey, you know, you've got me interested um, where do I start? And the problem is there really isn't a, like a, that I'm aware of, a starting from ground zero tutorial. There's a good book. Wait a minute. Let me see if I can find it because I have well, it, I think, on my shelf. There's a number of very good books on this. You know, well, there's books. a site. Oh, good. There, All right. There, 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 there's a site for Windows called Masm, M-A-S-M 32.com. And... This is relatively high-level stuff. I mean, it's, again, if you want to play with with assembly code in Windows, I know of no better resource. There's lots of links, lots of samples. They have a, an, a complete SDK, as it's called, a software development kit that provides all the pieces that you need, um, linkers and help files and... and um, uh, header files and include files that provide the definitions and all sorts of stuff. None of this existed back when I was doing assembler in 16-bit code, but it has come together now for the 32-bit world. So masm32.com for people who are interested in in beginning to poke around. I mean, again, it's not what I would create if I were going to create a from-the-beginning tutorial, um, but you know, I haven't had a chance to do that yet. I'm going to try to find this book. It's a thick book. I think it comes with Masm in the back. Uh, and it's all about assembly language. And I, it, yeah. And there, and there used to be a wonderful assembler on the Macintosh that Apple made. And I don't know if they still do it anymore. But I do believe they offer free, uh, you know, they have all the free developer tools. And I believe they offer the whole X, The whole Xcode, Xcode. system is, is, on right. the, is on the disk. And it's yeah. probably got an assembly. I'm sure it has an assembly. Oh, absolutely does. Yeah. So you're, you're set on the Mac as well. It's the education that's hard. Well, I haven't I haven't ever talked yet about my long-term plan legacy project. I will tell mm. everyone about that when we're through talking about computers. Now you have intrigued me, Mr. Gibson. <laughs> Question three from Eric Stearns in Denver, Colorado. He writes, he wants to know how a computer starts up from the very beginning. Steve and Leo, I enjoyed the discussion so far on the basics of how a computer works. 
After the first two podcasts, I feel I largely understand the basics of how a computer works uh, once it is operating. But one point that's never been clear to me is how a computer starts to work. So we have this dumb box of rocks. It's powered off. Now we provide it with a flow of electrons. Well, maybe not a flow, but at least voltage that can provide a flow. But how exactly does this lead to the ability to do something useful like executing some very basic instructions to eventually be able to run a program. How does it start? Yeah, well, it was a neat idea. I mean, a neat, a neat question, um, which we never talked about. No. And this is something which has evolved over time. Um, the very early machines, you know, the mini computers, you know, my favorite, the PDP-8 or the 11, um, you know, those, those early machines which used core memory, because the ma- the memory itself was magnetic and could and and would persist across a power off and power on, um, it was often the case that the computer still had the program in it when you turned it back on. I mean, it's, it's magnetic in the same sense that a hard drive is magnetic, and right. of course we know that the intention of hard drives they don't always succeed, but the intention is that they will retain their data even when they've, they've been powered off. So mini computers would typically, you you'd turn it on and it would come up just sort of sitting there saying, okay, you know, I, I'm beginning to burn up power and making whirring sounds. What do you want me to do? And so the operator would put the, the starting address of the program like, you know, time sharing basic or something. If you had a bunch of teletypes in a classroom of kids, You'd put the starting address in, load that into the program counter, and press run. And it would just it would just pick up sort of where it left off. Then some machines of that era, typically like doing process control work or real-time stuff, there was something called a power fail restart, where there was typically an option that you could get such that if if power fail restart was installed then once the computer's power levels came up and stabilized, it, th- this, this option would simply jam a starting address into the program counter and sort of electronically do the equivalent of pressing the start button. So it would just, it, it would just start itself up. And in fact, you might have a power fail occur while it was running, in which case this power fail sensing auto restart when it, when it would see the power beginning to fail it would it would interrupt what the computer was doing and and we're going to be talking about interrupts here before long because that's a huge issue and it's the problem that Toyota is having at the moment um and it would interrupt what the computer was doing and save the state of the computer that is where it was what was in the accumulator and 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 the carry bit, you know, so that so that later when power was restored, the state of the computer could be restored to exactly where it was. So these things would be stored in core, and then the computer would stop itself before the power levels had dropped to a level that it was no longer reliable. And then similarly, when you when the power came back on and the the what was stored in memory would end, would tell this power fail option that the computer had been running when power was interrupted and so so read from 
core memory, these things like the original content of the accumulator, the original content of the, of the, of the carry flag at the time of, of this interruption, put those back and then resume execution from literally the instruction immediately following the last one that had been executed before the power failed. And so it would be just as if nothing happened. So now we move forward decades to our current machines. And um, our current machines all have some code in them separate from RAM. That is, they have ROM, and that's you know, traditionally called a BIOS, uh, which is BIOS is an acronym, B-I-O-S, basic I-O system. And, and the startup code for the machine is in the BIOS. So the heart so to so to directly answer Eric's question about contemporary machines, how our computers that we're using now start up, it's as simple as the the chip, the actual processor chip is designed so that when it comes out of reset, so when, when reset is over, which and now reset is the state the machine is in when it's powered up, or after you, if your machine, if your computer still has a reset button on the front, that's that's a physical hardware reset button that typically pulls a wire down, going, you know, pulls the voltage on a wire down that's going into the chip that just stops everything. And and essentially when you remove your finger from the button or when power levels have come up and stabilized, the processor is hardwired in its you know in its hardware to start executing code at a certain location. You know, we've talked about how there's the the the, the program counter steps through locations in memory, reading instructions one at a time. So it's simply a matter of the the, the chip always starting from, you know, it might be zero, it might be FFFF, you know, like all ones. It'll be some predefined hardware location and at that location is a little bit of ROM, a little bit of read-only memory. That is, the rest of the machine's memory, RAM, will just be random. It'll be not necessarily zeros. It's, it's, it's interesting, too. When you turn, when you power up RAM, it generally comes up in some, you know, noisy state, but not all necessarily zero. One of the first things that the BIOS normally does is go and clear out the ram in order to to start it and it also begins refreshing the ram um, in order to keep its contents alive so there's housekeeping being done but it's literally it's just a matter of of the processor always going to a a predefined hardware defined in its hardware starting location where there'll be a little bit of memory a little bit of rom that will be the first instruction that it executes and the second and the third and the fourth and and you know the rest is windows or <laughs> or mac or, or whatever like linux that. and the rest yeah. is windows, rest is windows. <laughs> question four from pdp10 programmer hmm, i like that regarding is the PDP eight different than the PDP ten, or is it? Pretty oh yeah, yeah. Um, they had they had different. The PDP ten was a thirty six bit, oh. really long word machine. 
Uh, beautiful, beautiful computer, but much bigger. I mean, it was like one of those raised floor uh, ah. forced air cooling sort of machines. And a beautiful machine. You wouldn't have it blinking behind you with the blinking lights. No. no. If you did, you wouldn't be able to hear me talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. PD Pit 10 programmer writes, uh, Stephen Leo, with respect to the Lower Marion School District LMSD spying case, I heard you mention on the podcast that kids in the district had become so suspicious that they started putting post-its over the camera. I also read on some Mac-related web forums posts by the IT guy at LMSD regarding this. He said, if Max came to uh, the IT with post-it notes over the camera, the IT guy should... Just put a pinhole in the post-it, but leave it in place so the student thinks the camera's still covered. With info coming out like this, seems they've got these guys dead to rights. They were spying on the students. Boy, that is shocking. <sighs> yeah, we have another, another interesting question a little bit later on, because th this news really stirred up our listeners, and lots Rightly of people so. had some questions. But more about the technology. This is more about the ethics of it. Um, you know, I just... I wanted to to uh, put this in the podcast because if we if I mean assuming that it's true it it really does seem wrong you can you can argue that that well that the this, the camera technology was there to be used by the district to recover stolen and lost laptops the problem of course was that there's evidence that that is conclusive that non-stolen non-lost laptops were having their cameras turned on and and whoever was doing the looking was you know feeding information back to the assistant principal who was then confronting the kids who were registered to this laptop about their behavior at home so you know so given that that's the case the notion that that the IT people were being told to poke a little hole in the post-it note so that the camera would be re-enabled. I'm not really sure how well that would work, by the way. I mean, it sounds a little apocryphal to me. But, yeah. you know, given that that was what they were doing, um, that seems extra annoying and, and slimy. If you were to defend the whole practice, that is, if... If notification had been provided, if students and family knew that this was a feature of the laptop, certainly they would have reason to believe that no one was going to be spying on them unless the laptop was lost or stolen. Um, but at the same time, then then you, I guess you could argue and you could imagine the, the school district's attorney arguing that, well, you know, this is a security feature which we need as part of our laptop loaning program. So cutting a hole in a post-it note is necessary and justified in order to keep the security feature functioning. Oh, please. You know, I, I know I'm not, I'm not defending it. I'm just saying this is, you know, you could imagine what the LMSD attorney would, would be doing, but <laughs> still. Uh, Your Honor, <laughs> it's just pretty hard to explain. It's bad. Yeah, it's not good. Uh, all right, get ready for a long one. About assembly language, once again, Jeff in Washington, D.C. wonders about assembly language, CryptoLink, and Intel Macintoshes, and, as long as we're throwing everything in, How the Computer Works series. Steve, first I'd like to thank you and Leo for a terrific podcast. I thoroughly enjoy listening each and every week. The information covered and so elegantly presented is truly a gift to the world of computing. 
He says he's found the How Computer Works series very informative while reviewing the machine language module. Oh, they're modules now, not that, not episodes. <laughs> I discovered I had a few questions. One general question: I'm wondering how well assembly language leads itself or lends itself to multiple platforms. No OSs, uh, Linux, Mac, OS X, and Windows, as well as various architectures, 32-bit versus 64-bit. Does Assembler compare with other languages like C, C++, etc., that have odd nuances when deploying on different OSs? That is, does it require heavy modification depending on the OS in which it's used? C code on a Unix system doesn't really mirror a Windows implementation of the same C code. Does a change from a 32-bit to 64-bit architecture generally require major changes to the assembly source code? Why don't you answer? You want to answer one of this one first, and then I'll give you the next next part. Um, yeah, I think we'll together? probably end up covering his his specific example as okay, part of well, this. Okay, well, I'll give you a specific example then. Yeah. Knowing that you write uh, the majority of your programs, including uh, the upcoming CryptoLink and Assembler, most of your applications are ultimately delivered in an EXE file format. And I'm wondering if your ASM-developed applications easily lend themselves to other non-Windows platforms. For example, will CryptoLink be available on the aforementioned various platforms, Mac, Linux, 64, and 32-bit Windows? I really hope that'll be the case. If not, will it uh, run well under an emulator like Wine, like your DNS benchmark does? Keep up the phenomenal work, Jeff. So we could shorten this by sort of asking, Is you know, what's the relative portability of of assembly code compared to higher level code? Um, and th the answer is they're pretty much equally portable and not. That is, um, C code is portable from one processor architecture to another. That is to say, it was designed so that, so that the same the same code could could be compiled to different machine language where the compiler would be doing the translation between the C code and the specific hardware architecture, how many registers the chip has and, and, and so forth. Um, but C code is, is not portable across operating system families, that is, for example, Linux, Mac, Windows, because the operating systems provide radically different sets of services. That is, the operating systems, and we're going to talk about in detail in the future, what is an operating system as, as we continue moving up the, the abstraction hierarchy from diodes and resistors where we began all the way to a, a, a working system. But what, what essentially operating systems provide an abstraction to the, the software running in or on the operating system of the outside world. It's the, the operating system provides an abstraction for the, uh, the IO and for memory and for storage and for the passage of time Sort of, you know, the, the, the application itself in a modern operating system does not actually connect or, or contact the hardware. Rather, the, the operating system publishes services which the program takes advantage of. For example, the program says, hi there, operating system. I need a block of memory for my own purposes. Can I have one, please? And the OS looks at its pool of available memory, which is 
shared among all the applications and and has a chunk that's free and so and provides a descriptor back to the opera to, to the program saying oh yeah here's here's a chunk of memory let me know when you're done with it because we want, we want to put it back into the common pool once you're through and so so that's the case regardless of what language you're programming in that is for example i'm talking to windows i meaning steve who writes in assembly language my assembly language code is using the same services that someone writing in C uses. So I'm I'm using the same operating system services as someone in C, but if we took either me and my assembly language or a program in C over to a Mac, while you could recompile the C program for um, uh, um, under Mac's assembler to pr- to pr- create um, machine language that would technically run on the Mac, that program would be lost. It would, it would be trying to, it would be expecting Windows-oriented services when none are available because the Mac has an entirely different view. It, it presents a completely different abstraction of the outside world to the programs that run on it. So, um, so, Relative to CryptoLink, for example, I'm already aware that I will be under immediate pressure to make this thing run on platforms other than Windows. And, and I've, this has been discussed already in, in the, G, the GRC news groups. I'm, because I really do want to serve as large a market and, and offer this solution to as many people as possible, my, in, my plans are already to carefully modularize my code so that the so that the bulk of cryptolink will be portable to different platforms which they, they will all have to be intel chipsets I, because this is largely going to be assembly language but i could still del- uh, deliberately for example keep the the code that deals with the LAN adapter that deals with the kernel driver, I'll have a very different one on a Mac and a very different one on, on, on a Unix or Linux system. But if I'm careful, rather than just mixing all of that code together in a big stew, if I'm, if I'm knowing that I'm going to be moving this thing other places, then it behooves me to, to deliberately keep some, some modules to this so that, for example, when I when I do want to port it to the Mac, I'm I'm most of my code is you know do, is was carefully written so it doesn't care where it is. But then it then asks a network module to to do the network magic on that particular platform. So there would be um, some things that are OS specific, but they would be well they 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 would be well encapsulated. Um, from the beginning. So it's possible even for assembly language to be as portable as C as long as you're not changing processor platforms. C allows you to jump from one processor, you know, PowerPC to Intel to, to you know, any other type of microprocessor relatively easily because you're abstracting the 
the architecture of the hardware in C, whereas you're absolutely not doing that in assembly language. You're, you know, you're, the language is the language of the hardware, exactly as we've been discussing. Yeah, that was the point of C, was to create a uh, non-processor-specific portable language. Back in the we, days when you, you know, you, you didn't have GUIs, you didn't have really a lot of interfacing with the operating system. Yeah, and Unix was written on a PDP-11. Right. That, the PDP-11 was the first Unix machine. So they, you know, I mean, they provided libraries for uh, low-level file access, things like that. So you didn't, have to, you didn't have to see anything like that. But you can do that with Assembler, too, as you said, encapsulate it. Right. Just separate it out. Just plan ahead. Yeah. So that's, uh, uh, that's a revelation to me. I had no idea that you were planning portability because you, yeah. you've never done that before. You've only written for Windows. <laughs> And I'm already getting DOS, heat for it about say. Spinrite, so I'm not going to make that same mistake. Yeah, wow, that's very interesting. Well, Spinrite relies on, what, in 13? The BIOS call, right? So you you can't really um, do that on a Mac. Um, yes, uh, the, the Mac has the EFI BIOS, and and so it just, yeah, it would, it, I you know, it would be neat at some point for me to move Spinrite over. I know that there are a lot of people who would like it. It's just... Right now, it's you know it's, it's down on the queue a little ways. But yeah. CryptoLink, because it is not uh, relying on the OS so much or the BIOS uh, so much, you could do that's portable. You could make that portable. It's, just, it's the UI that wouldn't be portable. Well, I mean, frankly, Spinrite could talk to the Intel hardware just as easily. It's just because of its history, it doesn't. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. were I to do it today, I would be talking to the hardware directly sure. and, and get a lot more power and flexibility. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Next question comes from Bangkok, Thailand. I'm going to butcher this name. Uh, I think it's Tirawat Isariakul. Very well done, Leo. Yeah, we don't know if it's right, but it's what we're glad that Elaine has access to this to, to this file that we're reading also so that she can transcribe his name correctly. Yes, this is a uh, data leakage uh, question. Stephen Leo, I've been a longtime listener to Security Now, proud over, owner of Spinrite, although I haven't had to use it so far. A couple of episodes ago, you answered a question about whether we should be worried about unencrypted data in RAM. The conclusion was it's unlikely to be a problem since the data in RAM disappears almost immediately after we turn off the computer. Well, how about this? You know from time to time the data in RAM will be written into a swap space on a hard drive, page file, .sys, for instance. Uh, Since that data is not encrypted, I figured the data in the swap space is unencrypted too. Am I misunderstanding something? If not... Should we watch out for applications that store sensitive information in RAM? Love the show. Keep up the good work. You should also add uh, Hibernate files, which are dump, RAM dumps. Yeah. And first of all, this is a great question. And um, he's completely right. Um, it, the the, the pagefile.sys, as Windows calls it, um, and, and he gives that example in, in his note here, is um, generally a substantial percentage of the size of physical memory in a windows machine and i think that's what is it one and a half times well if you know uh if that's the rule of thumb but if microsoft does it all sorts of weird things with yeah it it does does, yeah it does vary and um so it, it is the question previously that that this questioner was referring to was someone was asking whether you know, RAM itself should be kept encrypted um, and only decrypted like on the way to the processor. And we we decided, well, technically you could do that, but the the you know the threat 
um, surface is so small for for anyone getting access to the RAM prior to the point where it degrades down to noise that it just doesn't really seem like it'd be worth the, the overhead of of I mean, it's substantial overhead of performing encryption and decryption on the fly as you're writing to and from the RAM chips. However, it is the case that that the 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 the, the swap file is used by forensic examiners like you know the FBI when they they grab machines they absolutely look through the page file because they know that it's a record of what has been in RAM. And it's, it's, it's not the case, though. He, he suggests, if not, should we watch out for applications that store sensitive information in RAM? Well, uh, watch out for applications that use electric power. I mean, I mean you know, or, or, or computers that do. There, there, there isn't anywhere for sensitive information to be other than in RAM. You know, it, it's like when we were talking about decrypting DVDs and and HD and Blu-ray and all that. We were explaining how it's it's not possible. It I mean, it's it's literally, theoretically, even not possible to to protect that encrypted data from from somebody who wants it because the machine itself has to decrypt the the DVD or Blu-ray or HD disc in order to play it. it. It has to exist in the clear. Similarly, sensitive information has to be in plain text format. I mean, it's, you know, if you're writing a document and it's there in Word, it's, I mean, if even if the information is sensitive, it's there. It's in, it's living on your screen and it's in RAM. So, um, it is the case that there are security tools which will wipe the page file as your computer is shutting down exactly for this reason oh. they you know they, they, they will wipe the page file as part of the shutdown because it's understood that that otherwise that file is sensitive now we've talked about various types of hard disk encryption tools like TrueCrypt, which is our favorite, um, because it's you know it's open source and well supported, and it's evolving nicely. Um, and Leo, you mentioned hibernation that was missing from TrueCrypt for you know initially, and has now been included, meaning that they it, it's sort of extra tricky to encrypt the hibernation file, which is to say the state of the machine. When we talk about machine state, as we were a minute ago, you know, contents of registers and, and, and RAM, we need to, in order to like just freeze the computer, you need to save the state and, and in some sort of non-volatile form so that you can later reverse that process and restore it. So, um, it's tricky to do to save the state encrypted because it means that you need to have a an authenticated validated decryption running before the operating system runs in order to restore encrypted data from hibernation so they did solve the problem in the case of truecrypt um with truecrypt it's possible to encrypt a a sort of a pseudo drive 
or encrypt a file or a directory. And they make a point of saying that make sure you understand that doing that, those those sort of smaller encryption modes does not encrypt your page file. That it's only if you use the so-called whole system encryption where you're encrypting the the primary partition that the operating system is running on and they make they also make a point of saying make sure that the page file is living on that same drive and not off on a different drive somewhere because again it then it would not be covered by the encryption umbrella that whole system encryption provides but in the case of truecrypt if you do use whole system encryption and the page file is located as it normally is by default on that system partition then it, it then even though you are writing ram to the hard drive it's passing through the truecrypt encryptor on the way to the page file and being decrypted in the reverse direction as it comes back out so with something like that you where they've made a a point of protecting the swap file you're safe but otherwise it's like the number one place that the forensic guys go right. to see what what was to, to see if they can find something and often they do that and uh, slack space is another great uh, place to find but yes. although if you're encrypting your drive you don't have to worry about slack space exactly yeah um, actually, I guess if you're encrypting your drive, you wouldn't have to worry about the page file if, full, if you had whole drive encryption. That's they, exactly yeah, right. Yeah, they'd have to decrypt the drive. Uh, Chuck in Tampa wonders and worries about his Lenovo S10 camera and security. I guess we're all starting to worry about cameras on our laptops nowadays. He says, uh, being an S10 owner as well as owning other laptops with integrated cameras, some have disabled switch and buttons. I bet you more do soon. In the S10 case, function escape seems to disable the camera, most likely the USB connection at the BIOS level. You get the device unplugged from Windows, and it's no longer in the device manager. And sites like testmycam.com and the flash menu can't see the device anymore. And seeing as how the function key can't be emulated, he says, and that's interesting, I didn't know that. I haven't seen a program capable of doing so, and they have to release a BIOS update to allow you to swap the control and function keys. Is this not secure enough without having to put something in front of the camera? Providing the BIOS has not been infected with something that could override this, is this feature providing adequate security? Although an activity light and maybe a thumb slide lens cap over the camera, ooh, that would be nice. Keep up the good work, Chuck. What do you think? Well, Chuck is representative of a large body of listeners who wrote in asking about these things. I, I had to choose which question to put in the Q&A, and I decided not to put the one in where the guy listens to us without his clothes on because um, I thought, well, I wasn't aware that our content was that stimulating, but um, one never knows. Um, if we knew for sure that that the light, which is sometimes next to the camera, was directly connected to the power for the camera yeah then we could assume that they were inseparable and if the you light was turn on, on the, the camera, camera without turning on the light correct right. but we don't know that on any in, in the case of any given laptop it's certainly it's possible that the camera power is on all the time 
And the light is sort of a courtesy light, which is turned on by the software driver when it wants to, but that it'd be equally possible for someone to circumvent that. Um, uh, in, in responding to another piece of email about this, I, I mentioned, I said, you know, who, to, 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 somebody was wondering if the light was always associated with the camera. And I said, well, even if it was, how long does it take to catch some incriminating pictures or something that you you would rather not have get out. You know, you'd, you'd be furtively looking at the light every time you walked past the open laptop, worried that the camera might be on, which, you know, really seems like the wrong approach. Um, but I would like to see the only thing that would satisfy me would be a physical lens, uh, a physical lens cover of some sort. I have a... Um, a very high power um, handheld laser. Um, and it's so high power that, well, for example, it's able to pop a balloon. I mean, it puts out a seriously strong, coherent beam of light. And at that power level, the government r- requires a number of safety features. It has to have a physical lock and key, and it has to have a a delay between the time you press the button to turn it on and it emits radiation. And it has to have a physical shutter, which blocks the opening completely. Um, otherwise, it's, it's, it's illegal at that power level. Um, so, you know, that the, the, you know, whoever put those regulations in place understands that, you know, even though you've got a, 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 a keyed lock and a time delay before this thing turns on, there is no substitute for a physical shutter, which is, you know, physically blocking, in the, in the case of the laser, this light getting out. And I would argue from, you know, as a technologist, nothing could, could satisfy me other than a physical cover over the lens. Because uh, if this thing is controllable by software and... Any anything like this today is. I mean, if the camera had a physical switch, electrical switch up next to it, and if we knew what the schematic was and that it actually did disconnect the power, then I'm satisfied. But, you know, we don't have schematics of our laptops. We, we don't get that level of detail anymore on our computers. So, you know, I'm 100% behind a post-it note um, and make sure there's no pinholes in it. Um, until manufacturers start giving us a little slide lens cover, and I'll bet that I'll bet that begins bet to right. appear. Oh, that will be yeah. a very nice feature. Uh, Universal says in our chat room that the uh, lights on the camera are, are using GPIO, which means they would be software controllable. They're not. Yep. They're not physically hardware controlled. So yep, doesn't you, surprise me at he's all. Right? Yeah. Then it means a uh, a bad guy could easily uh, keep it from turning on. Well, and for example, you, if, if, the, if there was ever some software that had a feature of, for example, blinking the light in order to give you some level of like, okay, we're about to start the connection or, or you know, doing something like that where the light is con- being controlled separately from the camera, well, game over. Now you know that there's, you know, it's under software control. Right. And of course, let's not forget the mic. You could, you could tape over the camera, but people could still hear what you're doing. Yeah, and and the two together, that could really be a problem. What have we done? 
<laughs> Question eight. Paul Welch in uh, Gold Coast, Australia, of Australia, says, Security now taught me well. My short story, guys, my credit card company rang me yesterday on my mobile, but they blocked their number. Happens all the time. Hello, Mr. Welch. I'm an operator from your credit card calling. May I have your four-digit passcode so I can validate you? My question was, but how can I validate you? Short pause. But I'm from the credit card company. <laughs> I replied, well, so you say, but how do I know that? You want me to validate myself by disclosing my secret information, but I can't validate you? You could be anyone. So... I asked for a number and called them back and got the information as I knew who rang, thus validating them. You taught us well, Steve. Thanks. That's great. That's Isn't a that great good? story. Yeah. Yep. Just a nice little perfect example of thinking correctly. You know, someone calls you on the phone. You can't see who they are. And suddenly the first thing they say is, give us your secret your your secret password. Uh, be no. Skeptical. Yeah. yeah. I tell say, my wife that all the time. I say, if they claim to be from the bank or anywhere else... Just call them back. Just say, I'm, I'm going to need to call you back. I need a number. And, you know, I'll bet you it's not the first time they will have heard that. They'll understand. They're not going to throw yeah, a fit. Absolutely. You know, it's not no. like you're trying to stick your knuckle on their fingerprint sensor. They should, um, do, they should do what I always do when uh, somebody does, uh, uh, you know, something that uh, enhances my security. When the bank, for instance, they're always apologetic when they call to verify a credit card charge. And I say, no, don't be apologetic. I'm thrilled. Keep yes. it up. Keep up the good work. I love that. Yes, you know I want you. To, I want you to be doing this. It is not an inconvenience. Well, it is after about the eighteenth time, but it's. Yeah. <laughs> but I still want you to do that. Yeah, the, the the card I have, which I cannot use for buying gas, that really does annoy me. Because every like, time you use it, they they think you uh, stole yeah, something. Yeah, because it's one of the things. Apparently, what they yep, tell me is that's, that's what bad guys do: is they get a card and they go to a gas a gas station because it's an unattended right. Uh, transaction, and they're right next to their car for their quick getaway. If it, uh, if it, if they're not satisfied, so it's like okay, fine, I just use a different card. But you'd think they realize that you want to still use it to buy gas. Yeah, no. Dvorak says the uh, the uh, the biggest red flag is you go out, you buy a pair of uh, Nikes, and then you go fill two or three tanks at the same time. He says you will definitely get your credit card yanked if you do that. <laughs> And actually, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> hey, we're going to get two more questions. We've got one uh, question, actually, that I'm very concerned about, about uh, these uh, authentication uh, footballs being cracked. And uh, a question about uh, LastPass, uh, which is a, a program uh, I use and love and, uh, and, uh, and, and rely on. So I'm very curious about both of these things. And I've heard you talk to Paul about it. Yeah, also. I just think Paul's talking to you about it. I think it's great, but, uh, but if it's a problem, I want to know. But we'll get to that in a second. I want to tell you about Audible.com. Audible is a great site for people who love to read books. Now, we all know, I mean, I'd love to have more time to read, but there's plenty of time. I can't read because I'm in the car, I'm at the gym, I'm working around the house doing the gardening. Well, I don't do any gardening. But if I were, <laughs> if I were, I wouldn't be able to read. Audible is a, a great way to get reading done when you're in those situations. You know, it's just a wonderful resource for people who love to read. I'm reading a great book uh, by Leonard Susskind, who is a, a very well-known physicist about his battle right now, uh, his battle with uh, Stephen Hawking over the nature of black holes. You'd be interested in this, actually, Steve. Hawking at a conference about 20 years ago. Um, said that information that was sucked into a black hole disappeared. And uh, just said it kind of blithely at a conference. And, and uh, Susskind said, oh, my God, you, Stephen, you'd understand what you've just said. This 
this is one of the fundamental laws of the universe is conservation of information. And you're saying it's not conserved and it disappears? And, and Hawking said, yeah, yeah, that's what, that's what I'm saying. So for uh, quite a while, they kind of a battle rage between the two and of it's them. It's a black hole. That's what they that's do. That's what they do. <laughs> well, he was wrong. He was wrong. And Susskind was right. It just, it, but, they, but they had to do that. They, they had to go back and forth. It's a great process. This process of you know, physics of, of solving these questions. Uh, and the, and the, uh, the book is great. I'm just digging it. It's called The Black Hole War, My Battle to Make the World Safe for Quantum Mechanics. Now, you may say, oh, that's going to be too heavy for me. Well, no, no, no. If you listen to this show, you're totally ready for this. It's not. He does a great job of explaining physics, quantum mechanics, and black holes. And who doesn't love black holes? I mean, they're just the Ah, uh, really? I never met one I didn't like. <laughs> yeah, they're just the greatest. Well, they suck, but, you know, they're fun. <laughs> the Black Hole War. So here's the deal. You can get this book for free. This is a way of introducing you to Audible. One of the things that all of our advertisers do, and I really... Well, one doesn't. But all of our advertisers but one give you uh, free trials. The only one that doesn't do that is Ford, for obvious reasons. Yeah. I mean, they, you could get a test drive free. <laughs> They're not going to let you have the car for free for a month. Audible will let you have this book for free forever. All you have to do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. You're going to sign up for the gold account. That's a book a month. It's a subscription, which is really the most affordable way to get your Audible books. But you can cancel at any time, and the book is yours to keep for no charge. This would be a great one, but don't stop here. There's 70,000 titles. The Black Hole War, My Battle to Make the World Safe for Quantum Mechanics. I picked it because I knew the Security Now uh, crowd would be very interested in this, and, I, and I'm just digging it. So just go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Now, you can download it on your computer. Certainly, you can listen on the computer. Most people will put it on a portable device. Almost all portable players work fine. Many smartphones, um, BlackBerry, iPhone. It doesn't work yet on Android, but I hear that's coming soon. Works on even some GPS devices. There's a device center right here at uh, audible.com that you can look and see. Make sure it works on your portable device. Of course, all the iPods and iPhones and everything. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Download a book, start listening to it, and you'll be amazed how much reading you can get done in all those times when you just really can't hold a book. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support for uh, all of our Twit podcasts. They've been really a fantastic sponsor. Uh, question nine from S.L. Garwood in North Carolina. U.S. of A. wonders, has authentication, or I'm sorry, authenticator, I guess that's a product, been cracked? I see that someone has a man-in-the-middle attack against the Blizzard authenticator and is using it to grab data. Since authenticator is the same as the PayPal football, would this attack work against any authenticator? Steve, help. Um, okay, here's the problem. We, as always in security, it's necessary to have a very clear definition about what it is that we're expecting our security system to do. I mean, I can't state that often enough or strongly enough. And, you know, we've, I've said it before, but, but the, the, the PayPal football that we've talked about, a so-called one-time password kind of architecture it is designed to protect us from a replay but not a first play that is a, a replay attack where if we used the same username and password every time somebody could record that and later impersonate us by using the same username and password 
by using something like the, the PayPal football or the Blizzard Authenticator, which is exactly the same thing. It looks identical physically, um, which is, and this is an authentication device that Blizzard introduced in order to enhance authentication of, of their, their members and, and players, just as PayPal introduced it to enhance the authentication of people using the PayPal service. Um, in the case of PayPal, you are absolutely on an SSL connection so that the data flowing across the wire is protected by the secure socket layer encryption. And that's where the, the, uh, the one-time password data flows to prevent a man-in-the-middle attack. But absent the prevention of a man-in-the-middle attack, a one-time password doesn't give you anything. The, what you've done, if you've got someone in the middle who is able to intercept your correct username and password, even if it's only good once, they only need it once, that once. And so they turn around and impersonate you from their man-in-the-middle position, do whatever nefarious things they want to, and and get away with it. So, so it's given that this is the case. I just read this email for the first time as I was putting this together an hour ago, and so I didn't have any chance to go into any deep research into what's going on with the Blizzard Authenticator, but I didn't need to in order to in order to understand that that. that Garwood here is saying that there's a man in the middle attack against the authenticator. It's like, yes, of course there could be because yeah, just get in the middle. <laughs> that's, that's not what it, that's not what it protects you right, from. Right. No one time password system can protect you from the man in the middle. You you so so that so that's why it's really necessary to understand that that its job is different from from protecting you from any possible attack. It will protect you from one particular type of exploitation, but as always, security requires a complete ecosystem which is closed um, in order for you know with every part doing its job. And so it's like sounds like there's a bit of a design flaw. Somebody um, again, I don't know whose fault it is, how it was designed, what the system does, but it's definitely the case that something like the PayPal football. A one-time password, you know, if it if it can be grabbed that one time, that's enough. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I, I really like how you say you got to understand what the purpose of this is and what it can and cannot do. It's not an all-purpose. You'd use this, and you'll nothing will ever bad will ever happen to you again. <laughs> that's not quite that good, right? <laughs> Uh, question 10, our last question, and one that will be of great interest to those of us who use LastPass. Brent Longborough in, oh boy, it's Welsh, Aberseechan, Abergavenny, Wales, UK, wonders about LastPass. Hey, Stephen Leo, first let me say thank you very much for the podcast. I haven't missed one since number one. I just had my attention drawn to lastpass.com and wonder what you think of it. On the face of it, it seems like a good idea. But as I trust no one, with the possible accession of uh, Steve Gibson, I doubt, on the other hand, they appear to provide a full 
uh, one-time password facility and have YubiKey support, so they can't be 100% evil. I wonder even whether this might be worth a Gibsonian investigation, perhaps with a dedicated podcast. Signed, and Brent. It's going to get one. You're kidding. Oh, good. Um, I was chatting with our friend Stina mm-hmm. of Yubico. She uh, must know she, them, right? Yeah. I, uh, well, as a matter of fact, they're, they're putting together a deal. Um, I'm not sure what the nature of it is, but she's um, in town that is on the continent uh, for the RSA conference, which is going on right now. And so uh, she's going to come down to Southern California. We're going to do some coffee next week. Um, and sort of catch me up on all of the newest dealings in, in Yubico land. And one of the things she mentioned in passing was that if I didn't know about LastPass, I ought to take a look. Okay. Well, yeah. I've heard you mention it. I've heard Paul speak favorably of it. So I have contacted the founders and the developers and opened a dialogue telling oh. them that I just sort of wanted to find out who I could talk to that, you know, not some PR schmo. But, you know, the guy who actually made the bits all line up in the right order um, so that, you know, I had so a contact that I could ask some high-level technical questions of when I was doing um, a study of it. And they, they knew us and were glad of my, for my interest. And I got uh, email addresses and names of, of founders. And so um, it's definitely on my to-do list as soon as we get through with our existing stuff, it's one of the first things I plan to do is do a thorough analysis of LastPass and explain it to uh, myself, to you, and all of our listeners. Well, you know, the only thing that I thought was kind of interesting is that they, uh, you can see here on the map, they are uh, from Vienna, Virginia, which is just down the road. <laughs> from the spooky place. From the spooky place. And I thought, well, I wonder if these guys, um, you know, because, okay, here's, here's my conspiracy theory. If I were, say, a three-letter government agency with some interest in uh, finding out what people are up to, I would make a password program that was so phenomenally useful and affordable and effective that everybody would use it. And I would just make sure that I had the only back door. Um, (laughs) So would you ask them that? (laughs) If if you ever um, hear of me or learn of me um, discontinuing CryptoLink for <laughs> no reason, you'll know that for whatever reason, I felt no longer able to offer something that whose security I could put my reputation behind. <laughs> yes. you, you know, because I'll kill yes. it before yeah, I of course you might. Of course you would. And, uh, and I'm just saying that if I were the NSA, I would write my uh, own uh, password protection program. I'd make sure yeah. that uh, it was the best in the world. I'd give it away and make sure everybody used it. Yeah, the, the, the White House, you may have heard just earlier this week, and I haven't had a chance to look at it, but it, actually I heard, did hear it was pretty tame. Uh, um, the, the head of our cybersecurity for the U.S. currently, um, along with the administration's intention to, to, to be open and transparent, posted a bunch of information about the nations, the U.S. nations, um, cybersecurity infrastructure. Foot- yeah, they opened infrastructure it. Yeah. footprint and so forth. Yeah, except they did. They are holding out any offensive right information. Yeah, they don't want to talk is, about cyber warfare particularly. Well, they'll they'll talk about cyber defense, but not cyber offense. Mm-hmm. That is not what we do to hit back. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or assuming that that it's back and not first. Um, 
So it's like, okay, well, I'm not that interested then. And, in, in, you know, they, they kept the good bits. Out. Well, but I'm kind of glad they did, don't, aren't you? But, you know, I, I, I'm I, the last pass guys seem like good people. And uh, I want to understand and explain what it is that the system does and what the architecture is. But exactly like I was saying for our first question, when the guy was saying, hey, you know, what about, um, you know, the encrypted notepad app? Uh, you know, are you putting your reputation behind it? It's like, no, I'll put my <laughs> reputation behind something that I'm 100% responsible right. for right. and wrote right. from scratch. Right. But I, you, no one could put their reputation behind anything else. No one who's who's responsible. I, and, and I can't say that it's safe, uh, but I can say it is a great program in terms of uh, functionality and usability. And I use it because it's cross-platform. I use it everywhere. And know. apparently it either does or will have Yubico uh, uh, It currently support. does have YubiKey support. It's built Very in. Cool. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that gives you... But see, again... I know. If I were a three-letter agency, I'd make darn sure it did all of those things, <laughs> you know? Um, and does its operation require that it's connecting to the mothership? Yes. Yeah, see, that's that's always going to be a caveat for me. I mean, I'm deliberately designing CryptoLink so that for convenience, you could use a rendezvous server, for example, for NAT penetration. But I and the people who I imagine my product would appeal to will say, wait a minute, I want TNO, even when Gibson is the third person I don't need to trust. And my point is good. I don't want to to be responsible for that either. I'd much rather design something that needs no third party. The password store is local and encrypted and on your system. I think it's unlocked by a... a, a, I I don't know, because I notice I have to log in, but I'm not sure what... This is where we need you. And this is what I will figure out. This is where we need you. We'll lay out the architecture and understand exactly what it is and and what they're doing. And with with no reason to imagine at all that they're doing anything wrong. No, it's just, you know. Well, I mean, if you look at all the awards they have from PC Magazine, PC World, ZD. That all means nothing, of course. (laughs) If it doesn't have the Gibson seal of approval, I don't care. (laughs) Doesn't mean anything to me. (laughs) That's what we love about you. All right, good. Well, that'll be fun. Will that be next week? No, no. Sometime we we, we got to keep talking about computers for a while. Oh, we're real, people are really enjoying this mm-hmm. this journey through how oh, yeah. this stuff works, and I love the foundation that we're creating. And besides, I got it's. This is not going to be something I just do in an hour. I'm going to have. I mean, this is right. if we get a comprehensive analysis from me, that's <laughs> it's going to take a while. Yes, of course. Well, good. I'll look, I'll look forward to that next week. More on the, the fundamentals of computing. The stack, I think, is next week. Oh, yay! Really, really oh, wonderful yeah. piece of conceptual computing technology. Yeah, yeah. Very so, handy. Steve Gibson is the guy in charge of the Gibson Research Corporation. That's why his website is grc.com. You can go there and get SpinRight. Of course, the world's best hard drive recovery and maintenance utility. It's just a must-have for anybody with a hard drive. But he also has some great free stuff you can get there, like uh, you know his one perfect paper passwords thing and his... Uh, uh, shields up, and oh, there's just a ton of stuff there. If you have questions you'd like to get in the next Q&A, you go to grc.com slash feedback. If you'd like the yep. show notes, go to grc.com slash security. Now, there's 16 kilobit versions of this show that Steve puts together on his own. He's the hardest working man in show business. Uh, also, transcripts from uh, Elaine, um, and all the show notes as well. That's grc.com. Steve, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. We'll talk to you next week for another great episode. And uh, till then, bye-bye. Security now.